Talkie Talk, the podcast for TheMediaByUs.com. Joining me today is the Chris we always miss. It's Chris. Hello. It's me. <laughs> we got uh, TJ Boombaye. <laughs> Bumblebee Tuna? <laughs> TJ Boombaye. <laughs> and we got, uh, with all my money spent, I got myself a Brent. <laughs> Hello. It's, it's Brent. <clears throat> Did- did you use extra time to 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 get those together? <laughs> yeah, I was thinking about wacky intros for everybody because Brent already has. <laughs> I got myself a Brent. So wacky. <laughs> yeah. But on today's podcast, we're going to be talking about what we've been watching, kind of more curated selection of watch list uh, related to Oscar nominations that we've all seen, and then we're going to talk about uh, Skip and Breezy this week, and then going into a talk of fame submission for the 1927 movie metropolis but first our watch lists who wants to yeah first yeah so we're going to talk about uh, three best picture nominees that the whole group has seen uh we're going to hit the darkest hour the post and the shape of water um anybody got a preference to which one we dive into real quick i want to hear how brent feels about shape of water (laughs) no shape of water wins (laughs) uh Okay, well, yeah. Since uh, since you spotlighted me on that, then uh, <laughs> I uh, I saw Shape of Water and I liked it. I thought it was a good movie. Um, I wasn't in love with it, but I liked I liked it, and I liked certain parts more than others. I really enjoyed the uh, oddly enough, I really enjoyed the love scenes. I thought they were really well done and mm, beautifully shot, and yeah, even really like sensual too. Like they were really it was impressive. Um. I'm surprised there were only two love scenes from the uh, from what you hear from Twitter joking about the movie. Right. Yeah. No shit. I was ready for a bunch of fish fucking. <laughs> yeah. The scene in the bathroom, in particular, though, was followed by the scene in the bed when he's kind of hurting. Really beautifully shot. I thought. Mm-hmm. Really thought Del Toro did an incredible job, uh, creatively on the directorial side. The camera was kind of always. Moving up and down, like you were always kind of in water a little bit. Um, just uh, amazing job by him in particular, I thought. Yeah, and it wound up being very, uh, I guess, much more lighthearted than I expected it to be in, in spots. Uh, I thought there was a lot of humor, and uh, I don't know, I, I really enjoyed it. I don't know that it would have been in my top ten movies for the year, but it would have been in the conversation and not far from it. Uh, no, I know I've seen less movies than you guys, but I think it probably cracked my top ten. I was I was very charmed by that movie, and some mm-hmm. of the shortcomings I can kind of attribute to the uh, fairy tale structure that uh, Guillermo del Toro is kind of doing on purpose. It's definitely sure. like a dark fairy tale, like Pan's Labyrinth is a little. It's, it's not as good as that, in my opinion. But, um, like, some of the generalizations of the characters I can kind of attribute to, uh, you know, it's a, you know, it's a fairy tale. It's, it's the, the witch or the hunter, you know, they're not very well defined, but you know what kind of thing they are. Yeah. I mean, I guess I can kind of attribute one scene that I felt a little out of place to me to Richard Jenkins, maybe that character turning to, I don't want to say do the right thing because he's a great guy to begin with, that character was, but, uh. The whole scene where he realizes the guy at the pie shop is like a racist asshole. Like, that whole scene felt a little out of place in the movie to me. 
Uh, <clears throat> I watched it once in the theaters, and I watched it first time for us, so it's been a couple of months. But did that feel out of place for any of y'all? It does because it's it's a little late to be kind of setting the scene of you know oh and there's regular discrimination too like it's 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 not just Richard Jenkins and <clears throat> the fact that he is a gay man or the fact that um, you know I don't I don't not remember the actress's name Sally Hawkins <clears throat> and her unrequited love between two differently able beings. You know, it's also just, like, regular-ass racism going on, too. Um, right. Yeah, so, I, I, weird, it felt, it, it placed weird in the movie for me as well. I, I could see where, where where it was going, though, with it. With uh, Richard Jenkins' character is, uh, it, you know, that scene's right after he tells Sally Hawkins he wants no part of the, uh, you know, being in the heist for all this stuff. And he just wants to have his little fantasy with the, uh, the the pie shop guy. And it's kind of, I can see it's like his little uh, rejection and standing up for himself or society or something that they're trying to do there. It doesn't quite work for me either, but I see what they're where they're going with it, I guess. Sure. Yeah, I, that's what I was kind of saying about like his turning point, I guess, was like, oh, make your own fantasies kind of realization sort of thing. Do you, were, TJ, were you were you saying like maybe you think it was kind of sudden? Like he had just, just it went straight from him saying absolutely not to that scene, then directly into him saying, "Okay, I'm ready." To yeah, help. there was no like slow build, and it's right. hard to do there because that character is so loving anyway. Yeah, like, Richard Jenkins' character is so great in that. I can see that. that film, but it just felt a little rushed or pushed or something. Just off. I didn't notice that, and I didn't feel that way as I watched it. But I also don't completely disagree with that. Right. Um, I do have no idea how that movie didn't get a SAG ensemble nomination because Jenkins and Hawkins are obviously amazing, but the non-nominees were fantastic. The Russian bad guys are great. Stuhlbarg and Shannon. I mean, it's a perfect yeah. role for Michael Shannon. Yeah. yeah. And for Stuhlbarg. Yeah. God, is Michael Shannon such a Frankenstein in that movie? Yeah. Yeah. His face was lifted off of Easter Island and placed atop a human body. <laughs> and uh, who played the general? That's somebody that David probably knows. The name of maybe Brent. Yeah, his name's Nick Cersei. He's a great character actor, though. He's also on, um, yeah, Justified. Yeah, where I yeah. mainly know him. But from. he was great. It was a great, great cast. Um, but yeah, the, the story as a whole didn't hit me like I felt like it was supposed to. I guess since that's like Del Toro's mo. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, I'm a huge fan of Pan's Labyrinth. One of my favorite movies of that decade, for sure. Um, it just didn't quite get there for me. I don't know. Don't know why. Yeah, I didn't fall into the romance as much as I thought I would. Um, just knowing that it is like supposed to be this unconventional romance tale, and for me, it was. I, <clears throat> I know it's a little ridiculous, but it, it's more of like a heist movie to me than it is about like the budding romance between you know these. Uh, the opposite of star-crossed lovers. There's a term for it. It's not coming to me. Um, but very Montague and Capulet in that, you know. <clears throat> it's... I just don't see the romance. Um, and maybe that's my fault for not being open to it. Yeah, I kind of felt bad about not being absorbed. Yeah, because there's there's no opportunity for the big speech. 
the I love you under the rain and, you know, embrace. Right. Like that's the, neither one of them can talk. <laughs> n- neither one of them can talk and, you know, one of them will die if they're on land for too long. Um, yeah. And then one of them is a fish. Uh, <laughs> <coughs> but, yeah, I don't know. I, I, I wasn't sunk into it the way that I am with other Guillermo del Toro movies. Um, and I shouldn't count that against it, but I do. And... Yeah, I mean, I do too, a little bit. I mean, like I said, I counted against it. I think it's a four and a half star movie instead yeah. of a five star movie. It's still a great movie. Because um, acting and production design, I mean, it, I'm not sure it didn't deserve every nomination it got. And that heist element was really fun. That's, yeah. I think the, the high point of the movie was uh, was the the action of getting him out. Mm. And man, it's Octavia Spencer just like the best supporting actress of all time. Because <laughs> like, I mean, it's just... Did you notice when uh, Michael Shannon, was it Michael Shannon called her the help? In the movie? Oh, yeah. <laughs> I did. Which, got uh, elbowed Cassandra in the theater. Yeah. yeah. I, I, I did the same thing, actually. I said, she <laughs> should make him eat shit. <laughs> and he said, I bet you don't know how to do NASA equations. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's from that movie. <laughs> uh, yeah, so from a movie that I watched a long time ago to a movie I watched last night that all y'all beat me to. Uh, it was The Darkest Hour, or Darkest Hour. No, The. Because there is a movie called The Darkest yeah. Hour. It's like a shitty sci-fi movie from five years ago. Yeah, I didn't realize, even though Brent had made this joke, like, two movies about Dunkirk, that the movie is mostly about Dunkirk. <laughs> there, there were two Dunkirks nominated for Best Picture this year. Yeah, there's a movie that we watched recently also that is, like, very much about the events before and after Dunkirk. <laughs> it just felt, this is just very, very World War Two year. Yeah. 2017, yeah. you know, no surprise. <laughs> But, David, how'd you feel about Dark Star? Um, I liked uh, Gary Oldman's performance. And uh, I thought it was going to be so scenery-chewing, and it totally is, but it, I'm still along with it, and I kind of forgot he was Gary Oldman after a while. I think he does good with a lot of the small human moments, in addition to like the big cartoonish Churchill stuff. Yes, I agree. Yeah, there's really only two scenes where he's like super Churchill, and it's during his two big speeches well, he needs in to the be House of Lords. Yeah, <laughs> and when he's rallying the people outside the House of Lords, like come watch him give a speech. Right. Like th- those two moments where he's like, you know, the textbook. This is the guy who makes all the quotes that everyone knows. Churchill. Right. Everything else is small moments, like with his wife at the breakfast table. I thought was really great when she's basically like screaming at him, like you don't pay enough attention to our family. Like, you're not married to me, you're married to your job. And he's he basically tells you, like, are you finished? Like, yeah. you know I love you, like, but you have to get over it. Yeah. And that was a really good scene, but... Yeah. yeah I thought he's he such was, a chameleon. He's fantastic in this movie. Um, what did you guys think about the movie as a whole, though? Besides just... Old better movie. than I thought it would be. Um, yeah, I was more intrigued and, and in it more than I thought I would have been. Um, especially looking back on it and how much of it was like just political and not a lot of, not a lot of like war strategy or anything super exciting going on. A lot of like backdoor politics. And Uh, it's not not even that much of like political strategy. No. It's It's just, it's a lot of just Winston Churchill reacting to how the chips fell. Yeah. Um, but I mean, I thought it was really good. It picked up a lot at the end, kind of from the moment the king came to his place and, uh, said, like, I'll support you if you do this. It picked up a lot. And I know that's, like, the last half hour, but... Mm-hmm. 
Um, I thought it was really good. I do see where the cinematography nomination came from, and I saw it real quick with the amount of natural light and almost no manufactured light they used in that movie. Yeah. Uh, looked really cool at times. And and the the shots are all internally framed well. There's always a secondary frame somewhere around Winston Churchill, um, which makes everything every scene he's in seem like a portrait. Which I think is really yeah. cool. And I've only seen Atonement, but isn't that David or Brent or Chris anybody who's seen? That's kind of Joe Wright's his thing, right? Is that kind of maybe? Well, I think I most know. of his movies are they're talked about that way anyway. David, does that ring a bell? Yeah. Yeah, he's, he's he's got pretty famous cinematography and framing for his stuff. Yeah, actually, there's a great uh, scene. The best scene in Atonement is about Dunkirk. It just keeps coming back. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that tracking shot that lasts like eight minutes or whatever. It's amazing. Yeah. It's one of the best. I, I haven't seen it since it came out. Yeah, I got I got I guess I gotta disagree a little bit with you guys. I didn't I didn't hate it, but I just didn't think it was that important or essential. It didn't really rise above uh, kind of PBS, BBC adaptation quality to me, besides in just maybe uh, one part or two. And I just, it didn't seem that cinema, it didn't seem that cinematic to me. It more, it seemed like uh, like a play that Gary Oldman was chewing through a little bit. Hmm. Did you want more flourish or like what, what like, not that, I mean, I hate when we do this, when we talk about what we would change or what you would have liked if they had done better. But is there anything... I mean, you've got Gary Oldman already. Like, what do you? What else do you do? Sure, the movie just, like, uh, it just felt a little stale and drab to me. I know some of the drab is on purpose, but it just it felt very kind of staid, if, hmm. that, if that makes sense. It, it yeah. didn't really come to, to come to life for me that much. Yeah, I mean, I wasn't impressed with my one of my favorite scenes, which is him on the train talking to the common folk or whatever. Like, one of my favorite scenes because I just, you know, it was heartwarming. But it, it did look, I'm with you on that, it looked like a, like the old Chronicles of Narnia BBC. It just didn't look great then. Yeah. But I feel like when he got to play with light, which was a lot of the movie, it looked beautiful. I think. And some of the, some of the, some of the flourishes became a, came a little, like, uh, obvious to me. Especially like the, I know we have a lot of best pictures with kind of a eye rolly ending now, but uh, the the papers going all around for like the little cinematic thing, I, I thought was a little cheesy at the end. Him going through Parliament with like his ticker tape parade of raw 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 all the papers from all the, the House of Lords <laughs> yeah. or House of Commons. I don't want to leave the darkest, or I don't want to leave darkest hour too quick. But that is a great segue into the third movie we want to talk about <laughs> with a uh, cheesy endings. Yeah, but before we do, I will. Yeah, I want to hear Brent yeah. breezy take. Well, I think I'm the only one who's talked before about Darkest Hour on the podcast. Um, I think I definitely liked it more than David and less than TJ. <laughs> uh, I, I think I I liked it, um, and David didn't. Didn't doesn't seem to hate the movie like you said, but uh, uh, I liked it. Um, for me, it it left me wanting more of the smaller scenes, the more personal scenes, and yeah. uh, like his interactions with the girl, the secretary. Yeah, so they were so great, and 
that was the that was the best part of the movie to me. Where the and the wife, his wife too, uh, his scenes with his wife, and uh, it just left me wanting more of those. Um, I liked the scene on the train, even though it did feel a little, a little like PBS Family Movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it did. Like I said, I liked it in a purely like yay, yeah, kind of way. Um, and and you say you liked it less than me. It's still like clearly bottom two of the nine for me. Yeah, it, it's a movie that I don't think I would... Like, I don't think it really came close to my top ten for the year. No. Um, but... And and also, I've, I'm not... I've struggled with Oldman's performance in a... How much of this is performance and how much of this is just a really good impression. The, the same way I struggled with Natalie Portman last year. Who yeah. I ended up voting with, voting for in our in our roundtable. But you said that before, and I got a question about it now. Mm-hmm. So if uh, Down Day Lewis found tape of one like oil band and did an impression of him for the entirety of There Will Be Blood, would that not also be a great impression? It would be, but it would be both for me. Like it was for me. I, I definitely it, the performance with Daniel Day Lewis is just is more than just he's this oil man. It's like. I can see every emotion that is coursing through his veins in that movie. But you don't feel like you could see that with Oldman? For me, a lot of this movie was just like, he's doing a really good Churchill. So so you, you, you recognize your bias that you know what Churchill is supposed to be. Yes. Yeah. And so for because me, there's no way to know that if you didn't know the oil man. That's the point the, I was talking Yeah, about. the real life Daniel Plainview. Right. I kind of get what Brent is saying. It makes me think of oh, I do, I do a too. comparison from like 10 years ago where I thought Jamie Foxx as Ray was an impersonation and like uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman as Capote was a performance and I, I don't know how to differentiate I would, I, would the two. I would flip those but that's 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 fun <laughs> um yeah weirdly i might go the reverse yeah <laughs> yeah <laughs> but i mean but, yeah i mean your point's valid and i'm uh, not uh, arguing with with what brent's saying at all i'm just curious as to what the difference is but i didn't understand that, that there could be both i guess yeah I don't know. i'm trying to think of a of a movie where it is just impression. I thought, I thought you got a lot of that in Oldman, though, in Darkest Hour, during the, kind of when he is defeated, and he's going to, he's such a different In the, in the spare bedroom? And in the war room, when he's just, like, like stuttering and not, you know, he's real quiet and saying, like, you know, I guess if they let us have our independence. Oh, uh, we'll, the, the second time they proposed the peace accord? Yeah, when he's like, we have to do it, kind of. I felt like it was very... Not like anything I've ever seen of Churchill, but... Yeah. Stannis Baratheon, that usurper. <laughs> shit, that's who that fucking was. Yeah. God damn it, it was annoying the shit out of me last night. Yeah, it's funny because it's <clears throat> it's the guy who plays Stannis Baratheon, but in The Darkest Hour, he plays, like, Darkest his Hour. age. Sorry, in Darkest... In <laughs> uh, in <laughs> Chronicles of Riddick. Uh, <laughs> no, he, he plays his actual age, but in Game of Thrones... He plays someone like 15 years older. So seeing him young again, it's like, what? Like, that's, you're not like actually the, young. It's the one uh, it's Game of Thrones actor who ages up. <laughs> I also yeah. thought that, uh, I thought Ben Mendelsohn was really good in this movie. He was king, right? Yes. The, movie? the guy from Rogue One? Mm-hmm. Colin, Colin Firth's king. Same yeah. king. Right. Yeah. I really liked those scenes, too. I, I did enjoy those scenes. Uh, His, between Churchill the, the and... The tea with the king. Yeah. His stutter, I was reading a little bit about that, and it was like, Ben Middleson's stutter was a little more accurate than Colin First, like, extreme stutter. Right. 
It's it's really weird watching. <clears throat> I'm not going to talk about it, but I'm done with season two of The Crown, and <clears throat> like I'm just watching a lot of shit. Like well, you could listen to the first episode of this, and I think I was complaining about how I hate period pieces about England, and. Right now, at this point, like a year later from when we started the podcast, I love The Crown and Darkest <clears throat> Hour. I watched The Crown, Darkest Hour, Dunkirk, like Game of Thrones, like all in a row. <laughs> no, but The Crown and Dunkirk and this also close together. I got to see three different people play, you know, Queen Elizabeth's father. Oh, uh, did they do like flashbacks in The Crown? The first season is is, is he king? Is like early forties up uh, until okay. fifty five. Okay. Or 50. He dies in 52, right? Yeah, it's just before she becomes queen. Sweet. Yeah, he dies, his brother's I've king. I've almost started a for bunch a, of times. His brother's king for 52. a year, and then he abdicates to marry Simpson. Because I know we're not doing <clears> Breezy, <throat> but that trailer I sent, did anybody see it? Besides Chris today? The Blur the, trailer? The no. Steven Soderbergh trailer? Yeah. It looks crazy. Unsane? Yeah. The Claire, movie looks wild. I love Claire Foy, and her American accent is great. And Jay Farrow's in that movie. Like, so weird. And Juno Steven Tem- Soderbergh shot a movie with an iPhone. And Juno <laughs> Temple's got dreadlocks and cornrows. Yeah. I'm excited. Anyway, that's a better transition into uh, talking about the, the third movie, The Post. It's just Post. <laughs> Get your fucking serial jokes out of here. It's the darkest Post. <laughs> yeah. Um, David, I know you talked a little bit about The Post last week. Um, I did, but I cut that out. Because <laughs> we were talking about it today. Oh, nice. <laughs> Sweet. <laughs> well, uh, anybody got anything on the on the post? So, any initial reactions? David, you want to be lead off batter on this one? Sure. I I, uh, I liked it quite a bit, and like I said, I'm a big fan of uh, really being obsessive and digging into process in movies. Always been a big fan of that. You can't say like I said if you cut it out last time. <laughs> what? Said so you can't say like I said if you cut it out last oh, time. Yeah, good, start good over. But um, <laughs> I'm kidding. You don't have to start over. Yeah, I like I like I also like just like newspaper and journalism and movies. In um, you know, all the president's men, Spotlight, you know, season five of The Wire. I'm always a big fan of that, and I love the cast of characters you always get with uh, journalism movies, and really loved uh. So many like tiny performances in it, like so many actors in it. But I really love uh, Bob Odenkirk, especially in it. Ben Bagdikian. He's the he's the he's he's the winner. I think I got real excited. I was watching that and with Chris and uh, at the theater, and I got real excited when like the first time you see Bob Odenkirk, David Cross is like leaning on the wall right beside him. And I'm just like. <laughs> You expect Jack Black to be there, and they do the uh, the farmer's daughter skit. Would it be funny if Tom Hanks went, "Hey, everybody, it's Bob and David <laughs> from the TV." They should have done that. They should, should have done that ending instead of Watergate. Um, there was a huge cast in that movie. I mean, you could probably name fifteen people in that film. Was there anybody who was bad to y'all in the past? Because I've got one. Tom Hanks. I thought Tom Hanks was great, honestly. I I had a tough time with his uh, accent that kind of came and went, and his uh, Tom Hanks trying to be a tough guy is just a <laughs> it's a personal thing. It's a tough uh, it's a tough digest for me because he just comes yeah. off as like, oh, you're adorable, Tom Hanks. <laughs> <laughs> I 
I like Tom Hanks. I thought he was. I thought he was fine. I mean, you and who else, right? <laughs> I I thought he was. Uh, I, I don't think it was an award worthy no. performance, but I thought it was good enough. It was fine. He seemed like he was trying to do a Boston J. Jonah Jameson at sometimes. Yeah, and I think uh, I forget, and it's my fault. Is it all the King's Men that Bill Bradley is like main character in as well? Presidents. I know that the Tom Hanks, all Presidents Men. My, yes. What did I say? All the King's, all the King's Men. Sorry. <clears throat> but uh, Tom Hanks has said that that he that he thinks that his his Bill Bradley that he never got it, um, that he never got the. The yeah. Bill Bradleyism. Nowhere near as good as shit. I can't remember his name. David Jason Robards. Yes, Jason Robards. And it's a uh, Ben Bradley. Um, Bill Bradley was a uh, New York Knicks senator. senator. Bass- yes. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Oh, that was a that was a Jeopardy Alexa question earlier. <laughs> nice. For New Jersey Hall of Fame and former pol- and future politician. <laughs> Brad Bentley. Um, mine was. I know she only had two scenes, but the first one I thought she was horrible, and I love this actress, but it was a. Uh, oh no, I can't remember her name. Allison Brie. Allison Brie. Uh, I thought she was. Her accent was just absolutely fucking horrible in the first scene she was in. It's like, hello, mother, have you had any orange juice? It's just like very, just, I don't know. I didn't even think about her. I thought that she was just purely window dressing. Yeah, which was good, I thought, in the second scene, which is weird. One of my big disappointments from this movie is getting this whole, this incredible cast together. Uh, Carrie Coon's in this movie, Mm -hmm. Michael Stuhlbarg's in this movie, and... They just don't have a lot to do other than Tom Hanks, Meryl Streep, and uh, I thought Bob Odenkirk had plenty to do. Yeah. I thought the journalists did in the the best part of the movie, that 30 minutes when they're putting together the papers. Yeah. I guess that's... Uh, I'll go into... I, I think I was the last one to see the post, and uh, I liked it. I think I didn't like it as much as I wanted to or thought I would because I love journalism movies, and there wasn't enough journalism to me for me in this movie. Agreed. The part that was journalism was great in the house where they're sorting through everything and when Odenkirk's going to pick up the papers and whatnot. Yeah. That's, those are the thrilling scenes in the movie. For me, it was just... Uh... <laughs> Sorry, the dog tried to break in the room that we're recording in. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, for me, uh, I don't know. I guess the focus of the movie was just on things that weren't as interesting to me and I, it's a tough topic to make inter- interesting because a lot of the journalism was already done for them by right the guy from the, the times yeah. uh, yeah, it's, it's a first amendment story and not a journalism story nearly as much right yeah. and so it, for me it was I, I don't know there were just I understand that Meryl Streep's character's angle wound up being the biggest the biggest part of the movie and why, but I just, it didn't, it wasn't as compelling to me as I wanted it to be. Yeah, I feel like you want a movie called The Times, let me talk about it, or you want a movie called The Pentagon Papers. I want The Pentagon, yeah. I want the story of that guy. Yeah. Uh, and how, The Whistleblower. Yeah. Oh, see, and I, I want the story about, we've talked, TJ and I have the talked Times about reporter, it, who, is I want to know the story about Sheehan, uh, because yeah, he's yeah. obviously more legendary than any of the Times, other than like Bagdanovich or Bag Bagdanovich, I forget his name, it's not actually Vich, but. Yeah, Bagmanian. Whatever. Yeah, David. It's had actually it. Bagdickian, which is funny. Bagdickian. Oh, uh, <laughs> <laughs> that is funny. <laughs> Good point, David. <laughs> Quite. Um, but I, I, 
<laughs> I want the story of Sheehan from the Times discovering that this guy has the Pentagon Papers and that initial like publishing and not this story because I think that TJ, you and I agree with Brent that Act 2 is the best is when the movie shines is when they're doing yes. doing it's, the news it's them up to them copying the Pentagon Papers that that first 20 minutes is great yeah and then it picks up again with a, a, a my favorite scene in the movie maybe besides the what should have been ending where Tom Hanks lays all the papers out on the coffee table that's great but my favorite scene is the guy who's like goes into uh, Ben Bradley's office and he's like sir and he's like no <laughs> <laughs> walks out and goes to the next office He's like, sir? I'm like, what? Like this? He walks into Bradley's office. That whole scene was really good. I, I did yeah. love, uh, I told TJ this too uh, earlier in the week, I, I loved the scene with all the newspapers coming out of the bag. And I, I told TJ, I was like, that's the point in the movie where I was like, yeah, there's that Spielberg magic yeah. that I yeah. love. That is just a very Damn Spielberg. Spielberg. Yeah. Spielberg. He's so good at movies. And, yeah. then, and then the Spielberg curse rounded it out. <laughs> yeah. Because that is the most unnecessary. Before we get to yeah. that part, uh, I, I guess the I, I thought the Meryl Street part worked a lot better for me. I li- my favorite part of the movie was the like co- conference call they get on, or they uh, stage in the middle of that party, because I think it's a uh, it's great mm-hmm. setup that they do with uh, Meryl Streep in the meeting at the very beginning, you know, having no voice, and then uh, her on the line with with everybody on the on the phone. I thought it was very very good and. Uh, I thought her arc was very touching. She had some of my favorite parts of the movie. Yeah, I mean, it is. Again, we're talking Shape of Water talk here. It's a, it's a four-star movie for me. It was really good. Um, but if I'm saying anything other than that, uh, I mean, another, I guess, a, <laughs> well, a top five scene for me, I was just going to say, is her and uh, Bruce Greenwood is really good, I thought, in Bruce Greenwood's house when he kind of lets loose on her. Like, you can't fucking do this. Like, Nixon's different. Yeah, uh, I thought Greenwood was really good in that soliloquy. Um, but yeah, the ending sucked. <laughs> yeah, it would have been great to end on the newspapers uh, out of the bag, you know, like yeah, the like yeah. the we won this, and then or even just like a post roll explanation. Yeah, where it says like you know the Sullivan's versus uh, New York Times versus Sullivan paved the way for First Amendment cases like throughout America for the next the X number of years. You know, just something that wasn't people snooping around the Watergate Hotel. I mean, here's the it'd be main really problem. funny. It'd be really funny at the end of like at the end of the credits. It just crawls to like President Nixon will return in the Watergate. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like the big problem with that scene and scenes like it is that that's in there for people who know what happened in the story of the movie they just watched before they watched the movie. And it is, it's, it's written for people who know what Watergate is, obviously, because they don't explain it. If you already know what Watergate is, you already know it's about to fucking happen when the movie's over. Yeah. So why is it in the movie? If they're not going to explain what Watergate is, why even put it there? I think, I think the point of putting it in there was to try and draw attention to the fact that maybe this like landmark thing that happened and the reason why you don't hear about the Pentagon Papers as a part of Nixon's presidency as much is because it was immediately followed by the Watergate investigation. Okay, that's which, I should see that. Which is, like, is, is history remembers the victors, and for, for once, it's not the president. 
And it, I mean, it, I, I just thought about that when you were saying that. It could have been like, since we did this, Nixon had to go try to, you know, dig up dirt on the DNC. Right. Or whatever. Well, and also, I mean, at least, I didn't mind a mention of Watergate. I didn't sure, love yeah. the way it was done. But at the very least, like, well, the story we just saw gives momentum to the post as the watchdog in DC. Yeah. Yeah. And so that's that sets the stage for them to for, you know, Woodward and Bernstein and whatnot. Right. Yeah. I just didn't love the way it was done. It was oh, shot yeah. POV like Forrest Gump scene. Yeah. And I'm it playing was the same scene. And I'm playing Devil's Advocate. That's why I think it was included. I still think that it felt like Nick Fury was gonna show up with his eye patch <laughs> <laughs> and, and and recruit Woodward and Bernstein. Nice. <laughs> but yeah, didn't did not love that ending that epilogue well cool david you want to take us into the next segment bud so we're doing a talk of fame submission uh tj brought this to the table it is our oldest one yet and hopefully the oldest one we will ever get it's 1927's sci-fi influencing movie metropolis metropolis so before i do the the standard i'll run through the plot <laughs> You gotta make sure you know what the plot is. I'm gonna say I think now, so I don't have to say I think a bunch while I'm saying the plot. Um, Having said that, I feel like it's pretty simple and straightforward in that most dystopian stories you've ever read or heard or seen follow this kind of recipe. There's, uh, takes place in Germany. Uh, uh, Maybe. Maybe. It takes place 10 years in the future from now. It takes place in uh, 2028, I think. Um, in an undisclosed place. Um, but there's essentially rich people that live up high and uh, above ground and have all the spoils and riches that they could want and uh, workers that work below ground and pretty much work 24 hours a day. Um, and, uh, yeah, the son of the businessman slash mayor guy in charge of the good city uh, pretty much falls in love with a girl who lives underground and is teaching, uh, kind of how to be a how to be a rebel, preaching like you know, shit's not right. We shouldn't be down here working. Everybody up top is is uh, having it good, and and our life sucks. Uh, so he kind of, I mean, through a series of crazy sci-fi shit, ends up kind of fighting and representing the people underground, and kind of. Working and mixing the two is the goal at the end. He is the heart. Yeah, he is the heart between the hands and the head. Yeah. He is the moderator. As they didn't foreshadow at all when she first said, we'll need a moderator. And then the camera went to him for a good two minutes. (laughs) (laughs) With no sound, obviously. It's a silent movie. They really know how to hold a shot. (laughs) Yeah. But uh, it is a uh, very bizarre movie, even... Uh, not the oldest movie I've seen. It is the second oldest movie I've ever seen. Um, but the other one was a comedy. So I've never seen anything like this out of the thousands of movies I've seen in my life. I've never come close to watching anything like this. It was fucking weird. Um, and just to uh, add add something that you uh, glanced over is I think the most important... I guess we'll talk about this when we get to the actual gauntlet, but the most important... Or the most uh, interesting plot point I think in the movie is the uh, the robot <laughs> and the inventor Rotwagon. Yeah, I mean that that is a it's a catalyst for the plot to move the plot forward. 
It's just it's just another sh- machine used by the industrialist. <clears throat> yeah, I mean, there's some symbolism there with the machine saying like, "Kill the machines." The machine telling all the humans to kill the machines. Mm-hmm. Um, but really, I feel like that is not as important to the movie, except for it being the, uh, you know, for that whole dynamic that works with when he sees the machine getting burned at the stake. I don't know how you burn a robot at the stake, but when that's happening. Uh, his he's heartbroken, you know. He kind of thinks everything's done. Doesn't feel like it's part of the plot as a whole, um, but I mean, it definitely it's the it's the spinning wheel for the whole uh, what's his name, Frederson, old man Frederson, and sure. Rockman. Uh, that whole story is pretty much all robot, <laughs> all sex robot. <laughs> But like all that shit with Frontwing's wife and like trying to make the robot hell, hell the name, not hell the place. Uh, I don't know why that was, that didn't really feel important to me. I mean, other than Frontwing's a crazy guy. Rockwang. Whatever. <laughs> I know that everyone else's name starts with an F, except for Maria and Rockwang. Rockwang. <laughs> yeah. Um, Frederson, Fred, Fredder, and... And Josephat. And Josephat. Josephat and Grot. <laughs> Also, Grot. Grot. Grot's live here in the studio. <laughs> we, have, we, ladies and gentlemen, for this talk of fame, we have an actual character from the movie. The Heart we of the Machine. The Grot. Heart. For anybody listening, maybe that has never seen me, I look just like Grot if you've ever seen The Chopolis. Odds are you've ran into me higher, that's the better odds than you ever seen this movie. But if you have. Yeah, I was going to say, I feel like more people in like five square miles around where we are right now have seen you and have seen Metropolis. Yeah, for sure. Yes. Before the podcast, David, I told these guys Metropolis was the Ulysses of movies. It's the movie everybody like says you should see, but nobody's seen it. <laughs> um, what did y'all think about the movie, though, as a whole? I mean, this is going to be a hard talk of fame choice. Everybody knows how important it is. It's one of the earliest pieces of dystopian fiction. Not just movies. Um, so it created multiple genres. Um, but what did y'all think of the movie? Just before we did the gauntlet? Or this is the first question. The oh, that is the first question? Yeah, right? Is that the first question? Was it, was was it entertaining? entertaining? What did you think of it? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I just want to get this out there. Because I'm, I'm not going to have much to say. Because this is pretty much it. Um, <laughs> I watched Mr. Nobody... And made you all watch that. And I thought that this was more of a chore. Um, there was... It was... This was this was work in a way that we pretend homework is. Uh, you know, lots of times we watch movies that other people want us to watch. And, you know, we like stick with it. But there's still something there to keep pulling us along. I think the reason why I watched this was because it's important. And because we were about to talk about it. Yes. And other than those two reasons, I would have turned this off in a fucking heartbeat. And yeah. knowing full well that this could get into the talk of fame, and this could just be me and my bias. This is not the movie for me. This was not going to be the movie for me. Um, it's It seems like the granddaddy of sci-fi should hit me somewhere sweet, but I don't think it hit it. Sure, and this is not a slight to you at all, but... Uh... You, no secret, don't like old shit, don't like old movies that much. Right. It needs to be a fantastic old movie for you to like it. But this is also, at your admission, the weirdest thing you've seen. Yeah, but at the same time, you're not going to sit down and listen to, like, Beethoven's third movement, even though you acknowledge it's great. 
because it's going to bore you. So maybe maybe if I would have seen this movie in context, if this was something where I went to a theater because they were bringing back the fully restored Metropolis and I had to sit in a theater seat and I had to watch it and I had the sound of the orchestra and I could I could be there for it with people who were doing it with me, I would like this movie a great deal. But for a thing that I think that it is a it is obviously serviceable that it's on Netflix. It's good that more people see this movie mm-hmm. because it is viewed by so many as important. Um, but I think it is a disservice in a Christopher Nolan-esque way that that is how people see it is by themselves like in front of their phone or laptop or TV kind of just having to look at it and go like, man, this is fucking weird. And not when people can surround it with some pump. In circumstance. Like a, yeah. a film class that would have assigned this to me, I would have gone to class and I would have heralded it. But as it is now, I just I just don't feel it. Yeah, no, I mean I don't I don't think it's highly entertaining, but I don't think many things that were filmed then are. Maybe. Um This is gonna be a really hard movie to put through the gauntlet, so I kinda like where this conversation's going <laughs> a little bit. Because I mean, a lot of this is gonna be very obvious answers, I think. Uh not that we can't run it through. Um but I don't know. It's 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 hard to compare a movie and entertainment value from that long ago when Pitch Perfect Two is definitely more entertaining. Does that make sense, to anybody? There's better dance moves in this movie, though. <laughs> there are no better dance moves in any other movie <laughs> since 1927. What do you think, David? Entertaining? Um, it's complicated. It's, yeah, it's, it's super so complicated. For, um, I. I I agree with Chris that this is, uh, this has, I, I was thinking it during watching the first hour, that this definitely feels the most like work, like, like, uh, active work I'm putting into watching something that I've, I've ever done for this going on a year now. At the same time, I think the difference between this and Mr. Nobody is I thought a lot of the stuff was pretty astonishing in it, considering when it was made, you know, trying to, I did try to like, I thought a lot of times while watching this, like how insane it would have been to some of the sets looked crazy watching this with the, watching this with the audience and, uh, having a orchestra play. I probably would just would have wept in the theater. Yeah. Back in the day. And like never seeing a robot before. <laughs> that was the first time anybody saw a robot. Yeah. <laughs> it's tough to say if it's entertaining or not, but, uh, yeah. So Pitch Perfect 2 is, is more entertaining. It's also more, uh, you know, more current. Entertainment is kind of, I think, subjective with the times a little bit. Like, uh, I don't know, um, Stephanie Meyer book is probably more entertaining than, like, Can- Shakespeare Canterbury on a literal yeah. basis. Because there's more action that happens. But, uh, I don't know, I, th- I think there's a lot in here that's, like, it, the special effects, I thought, still kind of blew me away a little bit how they could do it. Which I would think would be impossible. Something that came out this long ago. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, there's there 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 is certainly. You know, I I try, I try tried to separate my personal bias from it, but that's that's kind of not what we do from the outset of this question. Sure. Um, and you know, I can find like classic mythology entertaining or Chaucer or, you know, whatever prototypical media you think of still has an element of entertainment or brevity 
maybe that could be where my complaint stems from. It's an hour long prologue. It's mm-hmm. you know the the intermezzo happens five minutes after the end of the prologue, which is supposed to be the middle part of the movie, and then the epilogue is the last half hour of the movie. So the movie is somewhere in the middle, and I don't know. I mean, I I watched it. I know where, right. but it's there's a lot of scene setting that I think has to happen because it's not like you were putting people in the antebellum South. You were putting people in a futuristic society, uh, like a hundred years from when the movie takes place with an industrialist who rules the city with an iron fist that is literally in the clouds and whose workers live underground. Like they, they have to like, the main character spends all his days in a pleasure garden. Like, whatever the fuck that is, with gigantic mushrooms all around them. Like, <laughs> the it, naked, dancing naked ladies. Yeah, they, they choose from a lineup of ladies, like it's like the cat ranch. Yeah. Of which one is going to entertain them that day. Like, it's, it's fucking wild for people in the 20s in Germany to imagine, after being gutted by, like, World War I, uh, you know, treaties. And I... I can't put myself there. I can understand it intellectually, but I can't put myself there to enjoy it. I can see that. Uh, for me, it was for the question of was it entertaining? At times, yes. Completely? No. Um, there are definitely moments, and it was weird. Uh, I will admit I was also I was doing some reading while I watch the movie. <laughs> nice. Uh, not in the way you're forced to. Like, right. I don't mean just title cards. Uh, <laughs> but like, I was, uh, I, I pulled up, you know, I pulled up some articles on the movie just to read while I, while I watched it. Also so I could keep a good handle of what the hell was going on in the movie too. I was following along. I found like a very detailed plot synopsis online. Oh like, yeah. Was the, following along. The only me. way that I understood what was going on up until like, because it really does take like an hour and a half before you really start to follow the plot. Right. Up yeah. until then, I was completely fucking lost. Yeah, but yeah. it started. The prologue as, is pretty esoteric. Yeah, yeah, and, and it started as me reading to try to make my experience of watching it a little more tolerable. Yeah, but it slowly shifted over the course of the movie to the movie catching my attention and pulling it away from what I was reading. Yes, uh, hmm. that happened to me several times. Yeah, it definitely has a a solid like fifty minutes there where it's better than the rest. Mm-hmm. Um, like the post, so <laughs> so we can start comparing this to this movie to something other than Mister Nobody. You brought that <laughs> on yourself, buddy. I know. <laughs> yeah, no. Um, I, I don't know. I mean, I was. Uh, this sounds just like biggest asshole pretentious thing ever, but like I was trying to watch it like a student would because there's no other way to watch that fucking movie right I feel yeah. like like you watch it and like kind of be like oh wow that set is crazy like that looks like it's like an underground Parthenon you know what I mean that's wild mm-hmm. um, I don't know how entertaining but, a like German expressionist film can possibly even be as far as like it's just going to be it's that's the, what you're saying is like the only way to watch it I that's, think yeah and the only way you ever could watch it so like I don't know that this was entertaining in 1927 right so <laughs> was I was I entertained watching it yes because I'm like a weirdo who was kind of entertained by forcing myself to watch this thing but would like 
some asshole in the redneck town I grew up in? Like, definitely not. <laughs> like, absolutely not. Right. Um, there's nobody in Covington, Georgia that would watch this movie and be entertained at all. And I don't think I was by the movie, but I was by the experience at times. I can see that. If that makes sense. Would it have been better with David Bowie music as the, because uh, that was part of the 1984 it would have yeah. been more interesting. I mean, like, it would have been Freddie Mercury. Something singing. else. Yeah. Pat Benatar also. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. It's just, it is super complicated. Yeah. That, that question is really hard. It's, to it, 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 to me. the easy answer is just no, right? Yeah. Like, no. I don't, I don't, I don't even think that's the easy answer. Because you have to betray a whole school of intellectual thought. To, right. To go, no. Right. Don't care. No. Because I, I, not like you, but similarly enough, enjoy that I've seen it. The accomplishment yeah. to me is enjoyable. Right. But, and I'm not trying to diminish the craft, but it's like, you know, movies aren't bucket list items, but this one feels like it should be. No, it is that like, when that stupid... List check comes up on Facebook now. I can fucking click Metropolis. Yeah, yeah. finally, <laughs> and, and say fuck you to all your Facebook friends. Click it so hard. <laughs> yeah. Um, all right, I'm gonna try to run us through the gauntlet a little. Yeah, bit. Yeah, let's, let's see what happens. Um, just to see what happens. Uh, I think we can skip emotional response. I don't really feel like there was. Yeah. Uh, it's um, was uh, this is interesting though. Was the film what you expected it to be when you assigned it? Because none of us had seen it, and I think it's an interesting question for a movie. None of us had seen. Uh, yeah. It was what you expected? Yeah. It was for me, too. Like, I expected, like, it's gonna be some crazy shit. <laughs> and I watched it, I was like, yep. Yeah. <laughs> that was crazy. I honestly, not knowing a lot about the movie, thought that it was gonna be, like, a a 40-year-older Dave Yerston still. I didn't know that it was, like, commentary on industrialism. And commentary in not a symbolic way at all. Right. <laughs> in like a literal like slow build of uprising within like the proletariat. Yeah. Well, what that old did? <laughs> no. <laughs> what about? And I, I I kind of agree with Chris. It, it's not really what I expected. In more of the sense that uh, I did not expect it to be so goddamn weird and surreal. But the, I, I love that. That's the part I love the most about it. Was how goddamn weird it is. Weird. That was like all I knew going in. Was like. How goddamn weird Fritz Lang was. Yeah, I, I mean, I kind of I get what David's saying because, like the uh, when it the the whole Tower of Babel scene that was yeah out of nowhere, out of fucking nowhere, Babel, right, Babel, 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 Babel. Babel. That's the those that's one of those scenes where I like stopped what I was reading and stared at the screen during that. <laughs> it started I like, like I was like the words started bleeding. What is yeah. happening? This is this is incredible. I mean, I don't know. I don't know that I love it, but it's it's incredible in the way. Like you fucking went for it. That's yeah. incredible. Yeah, <laughs> good job. Um, I think we've already covered a lot of the storytelling and whatnot aspect of this. Anything oh. you anything in any of that that you want to? Add? I mean, I, I do think it is the. It's based off a book. So I'll throw that out there first. The book was written a year or two before the movie came out by his wife, yeah, who wrote the also movie. wrote the movie. So you know. Like Moonlight's based off a of play. It's based off a of book. But, uh, it did launch, like, 1984, Anthem, 
Brave New World came out just a decade or so later. Like, they are... This was... I mean, there, there, are, movie, there are books, works of fiction that are considered dystopian that came out before this, but they're not the kind of dystopian that I grew up with and the kind of dystopian that I always think. I mean, this is, kind of launched it, which is wild to me. That it was a movie. I like this question. Does the end complete the goals established by the beginning? Yes. To a fucking point. <laughs> like, it is, it is a very Bookended specific title course. card at the beginning. Is a spoiler for the last moment of the exact movie. The, it's... It, yeah. What's the exact word to get that dog card? Do you remember? The the heart uh the head and the hands must be mediated by the heart. That's right. Yeah. Um Well, is there a scene that stands out in a memorable way? I, I've been joking with Chris about it all day, like on Slack, but uh the Yeah. <laughs> we yeah, we, use, we, use Slack. we that. Uh I was really weirded out by the like robot after she had been made up as um, Maria, like seducing all of the workers with her like super sultry, sexy dance, which just looked like Samara coming out of the well in the ring. <laughs> <laughs> so I was kind of horrified uh, during the scene where they were all like turned on enough to like go burn the city down and let their kids drown. Weirdly, weirdly, I think you are supposed to be horrified by that. Yeah. I don't think it's supposed to be sexy to the viewer. Just to the workers because they're so... Yeah. Like, haven't seen a woman like that. Yeah. And, and her representation of sensuality is so alien on purpose that, like, she does, like, weird dance moves where it's like, well, shake hips. Yeah. Like, you know, like, move arms. Show that I'm tall. Like, it's, it's, it's weird, like, robot programming that makes her do that kind of shit. Um, what do you think, David? I think she's... Well, I, I would disagree a little bit. I think, like, the purpose of the Maria in the Yoshiwara Club, that's more to, like, just be sexy and turn people on and cause chaos. I think her from the workers, she's very purposefully has all of her clothes back and very purposefully uh, her limbs aren't animated to dance, but animated to, to persuade. But... So I think she's like uh, just inciting, playing off the rage of the workers. I don't think she's really the purpose of that scene is she's trying to um, seduce them at all. Yeah. Or the uh, the I gentleman mean, in the the makes... perfect gardens. Yeah, that's not, the seduction. We're mixing up workers with people in the club. Yeah. 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 Okay. Um, because because you're right because that's and that that's not to sag but it's great. Uh, the the scene that sticks out to me is her. Firing up the workers to take the machines down. I thought that, that that was the best performance. Is when Robot Maria is like contorting her body in weird ways to try and tell them to like go forward, and is getting them to uh, abandon the machines and get them to advance like further and further into the, like the heart. That's that's the stuff that that really sticks with me. Is when. Um, you know, Rothwang's final plan is coming into full effect and he's getting his revenge on Joe Frederson, which is the B-plot here, uh, which is crazy that it's the B-plot, but it's, I think, the most interesting part is all of this happens because, like, the whole industrial revolt happens because the crazy mad scientist inventor dude is getting revenge on industrialist King because he killed his love but getting her pregnant with the protagonist, Fredder. 
Yes. Mm-hmm. Okay. <laughs> Sometimes you have to say it out loud to realize that you yeah, learned yeah. it. Um, but, yeah, so then when, when Robot Maria is, like, finally sicking the workers on the machines and getting them to abandon their post, I think that's that that's what's going to stick with me. It's a, it's a really cool plot device in that kind of subplot B subplot you're talking about. The whole, like... Like I said, only it has a lot to do with the movie, but it's a great like catalyst to push it forward into what's important, which is, you know, him being like, "I want you to take this robot, make it look like Maria, so my son will, so he can break him of whatever phase he's going through." Yeah. Um, and for the mad scientist to be able to say like, "I can use this to my advantage," right? Yeah. Um, was a really cool like seemed kind of advanced almost plot. I mean, not that that wasn't happening in books for hundreds of years, but. So really cool, like I don't know, just a neat little twist. I, I also agree that it seems a little advanced because Rockbang, the inventor, isn't sympathetic ever. Like he talks about Hell, and we're supposed to feel for him, but Hell wasn't his wife. Right. Hell was the wife of Joe Frederson. He just loved Hell. Right. So like he was still coveting and being like like lusting after her. So then when he devotes this entire revenge plot. To his love that died, it was unrequited to begin with. Yeah, and he had already created a machine. Oh, I took it as, uh, I took it that Hell uh, Rothwang loved Hell first, and then Joe Frederick Frederson stole her. I maybe like, as much as you can steal something. I thought that was possibly it, but I wasn't sure. Yeah, I, I was never clear. Yeah, yeah, I wasn't either. I wasn't. Uh, I assumed either. what Chris did, but like very well could be what y'all are saying. Same for me, but the reverse. <laughs> like, I assumed what David said, but I could also see it being the other way around. I don't know that it... doesn't really matter. It, I didn't it think doesn't about matter it. a whole lot to me. Which I didn't one think it about it until after the movie was over, so I landed in the side of, there's probably no way I'm supposed to be rooting for this guy who just got thrown off the roof by the protagonist. Right. So I assumed he was just like a bad, crazy, crazy guy. He's not like a... Yeah, because I, I don't think that his arc is tragic. Yeah. In the, in the classic like sense. Like, it's... It's it's he seems like a sinister tool that turns against the house. Yeah, I agree. I think that's part of it. Right. In their well, you own, have the, you in have their the, own feud. The two bad guys fighting each other kinda. Yeah. Which is neat. Like I said, advanced. It just felt kind of forward thinking. It does footnote, it does kinda suck that one of the scenes that is still missing, even in the restored metropolis, <sighs> is the scene where uh Joe Frederson is it Frederer or Frederson? Frederson. Frederson. <laughs> I'm, I'm thinking of, of there's an animation company on Adult Swim called Frederator that's really fucking with my head um, but when Frederson uh, we get like just a, a gap filler scene that describes that Frederson goes to the attic where Rotwang and the real Maria are hiding and he overpowers Rotwang and frees the real Maria Oh yeah, that that's one of the scene. things that we don't see like it's the only time that we ever see like this Darth Sidious-esque character um, kind of take the cloak off and shoot his force lightning. Where he like actually is like being physically menacing to somebody. Everything else he's making goons or henchmen go handle things for him. Or scolding people or banishing them. Yeah, I feel like he was kind of like a... Almost like a Citizen Kane type character. Like a... Joe Frederson? Yeah. Like, not... I don't know. I didn't ever feel like he was evil as much as, like you said earlier, kind of like Iron Fist... Businessman slash, you know, CEO of whatever world we're in. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. 
it, for me, for if there's a scene that will stick out, it was oddly the catacomb scene. I really liked the catacomb scene where she speaks to the workers near mm. the beginning, and then maybe not the beginning, but uh, it's before she, and it's uh, the scene just before she's kidnapped. She's stalked down there by Rutro. What's his name? <laughs> Rotwang. Rotwang. Uh, there's a W. Could have been a V. I don't know. Yeah, Fred is watching her. That speech. Yeah, it's where she's like. Fredder's watching her too, though, down there, where right. she's explaining everything. Yeah, it's after Fredder left, and it's just Rotwing, like, abducting her after that. Okay. But Fredder's watching her give the scene where, he's talking, yes. where she's talking yeah. about it. Yeah. Okay. I like, the, I like that scene. It, when, after all the workers leave and she's down there by herself, I thought that was a, a well done scene where she's just scared and being yeah. chased in the, in the catacombs. I like that. Um,. Well, uh, themes are very big in Metropolis because it's all it is. I mean, it's, it's, the, it's like the first theme. <laughs> yeah. um, we've already covered that. The uh, workers, you know, the workforce versus the uh, those who control it. Um, that's pretty much it. <laughs> but man, I like how we, we have the question of, was it subtle or overt? It was not subtle. <laughs> Not at all. So. It's funny to uh, if um, you guys. I don't know if you guys saw. There was like a Wired article that had some of the reviews from 1927, and even in 1927, they said, "Oh man, this story is pretty basic. It's pretty broad." <laughs> <laughs> and, and it's like, and we don't even have the internet yet. It's <laughs> a very prescient review. <laughs> but I think I think it's. Uh, I don't know that it's a fault, but that's that's the movie's. Uh, it's definitely the movie's subjective or ob- objective of what it wants to do. Is it wants to tell the story in that? Oh, way. It accomplishes its goals one hundred percent. Yes, it accomplishes its goals one hundred percent. Which which is funny because it, it it ends it ends on an unresolved note, but it still accomplishes the goal. Right? Is the goal isn't harmony between industry and its capital? The goal is a conversation and an equality somewhat between the two because you still need human capital and you still need industry. Right. But you need a, a bridging of that gap, right. which is like, it's a, it was a strangely, and I'm going to steal a Davidism, it was a strangely harmonious grace note where the ending wasn't the workers revolt, now it's utopia, and the ending wasn't the industrialist crushes them and regrets it. It was like, I don't know. Like, I mean, wasn't there a title card that said like, Oh, it was my guy. Grot says, like, you can't destroy the machines, you need them to live. Right. Like He tells the workers. Yeah. Yeah. Like, stop being an idiot. And, and likewise, you know, when everything's grinding to the halt and Joe Frederson is seeing that it's all falling apart. Right. He has that realization. So they're like, okay, well, we need to live with each other. Let's make it better for everybody. Yeah. Um, which is an interesting way for it to resolve without resolving. Sure. But, agreed. The story, little, little 1927 basic. What about the uh, what about the performances in the movie? Which is tough to gauge. And yeah. It's tough. I will say though, I thought the girl who played Maria and Robot Maria was really good. Yeah, I thought she was fantastic. To the way she switched between, like she, yeah, she, she was very likable as as regular Maria and very sinister as Robot Maria. It's funny. It's something that we think about as like characteristic of a robot now, which is like very rigid, kind of angular movement is what she didn't do when she was being Robot Maria, 
where she would contort her arms and legs and waist in such like a, a an inhuman way that at the time that's probably all that was required to get people to believe that she was being the inhuman version of herself. But like now we see that as like just like creepy crazy Stevie Nicks lady right. is like bending her arms kind of backwards and shit. I thought Groat was extremely handsome. <laughs> <laughs> Had a had a lot of heart. Uh, yeah, I I I agree with uh, Grot being extremely handsome. <laughs> yeah. No, agree with uh, uh, Bridget Helm. It was Maria. I think she was like outstanding. And uh, along with she, what yeah, Chris she, was saying, I thought she was really good too. She was definitely the standout. Yeah, uh, along with what Chris was saying, like the uh, defining a robotic performance and switching between the two, that had to be like next level back in the day. And I love that her robot is. Like Chris is saying, is is twitchy and nervy, and like she has one eyelid that kind of like twitches more than the other, and it's unnerving more than it is uh, cold and and uh, like you know uh, monotonous. It's a, one of the more interesting robots I've seen in cinema. Mm-hmm. It was her first movie. She filmed most of it when she was only eighteen, and uh, she filmed her last movie in nineteen thirty-five. Refused to ever talk about movies again, and died in like ninety-six. Wow. Yeah. Wow. She, uh, it, it's funny you said that she doesn't uh, that she gave a you know very convincing performance as a robot when like first off they had to explain to her what a robot was <laughs> like that's that's like part of the probably what Fritz Lang had to just be like okay so you're gonna, half this movie is going to be you as a robot and she's like okay what's a robot yeah I don't know it's, what it's, it's like if you were a refrigerator what's a refrigerator <laughs> <laughs> So, Bridget, um, you read the book you read Metropolis, the book, right? right? Well, <laughs> yeah. No, I did not. Oh, man. <laughs> what is book? <laughs> uh, technical achievements are next. Yes. So, how were the... Uh, <laughs> They're worse up. <laughs> yes. I, I think this is almost... For me, it's so easy to... I can almost just gloss over it. Like, for the time, they're all amazing. The visual effects, the... Yeah. The... Uh, the production design, the production design, the way incredible. those the way those rooms seem so much bigger than yeah. the people in them. Yes, that to me, and and also, yeah, it, I think that really serves the theme of the movie, which is the metropolis being the right, you know, engulfing everyone and making people feel so small within it, and so like, I don't know, irrelevant within this giant metropolis that. Uh, I really like the way they shot those scenes in these just like huge rooms. Yeah. I, I liked everyone's makeup. Everyone looked like if they were out in the sun, they would burn. <laughs> I thought of that episode of The Office when Andy is in a community play in community theater and they do Sweeney Todd. The guy who plays Sweeney Todd, how he's just got that like disgusting pasty face makeup. <laughs> That's what I thought Joe Frederson looked like. <laughs> You got anything on the art direction, David? Uh, just that it was, you know, 10 out of 10, five stars, would buy again. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> that, I mean, that is in hand with, like, all the special effects and technical achievement and the, you know, you just, you, we'll keep saying it, but you can't shake that, like, something like this on this scale was never done before. And it's still, like, impressive to this day. I, just mm-hmm. the, the scale of some of the stuff. Like yes. just for like a uh, little surreal scene of like uh, picturing all of the slaves building the Tower of Babel or like going to that, and there's like a thousand bald men, and it's like this kaleidoscopic shot. It's crazy. 
Yeah. Or the heart and machine you know, in the for... dream sequence, like a nightmare sequence, it turning into like a giant head and it's eating all the workers. Mm-hmm. Like that's insane. It's and you know for a like, fact creative. And you know for a fact that in the scenes where there were seemingly a thousand people who were like revolting against the machines, they had to get a thousand people. <laughs> to find them. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> this, this, there's no like two towers like like taking like a like a square inch on the screen of orcs and like copy and pasting over <laughs> like they had to get all of these fucking people like this was a massive project yeah what's the next um well the what did you think of the soundtrack it was unending yeah that is correct it was ceaseless uh i liked it it uh, but again not in a way that's Right. Yeah. There's there was a part that irritated me about it, and it's when Maria is ringing the bell in the square at the end, and the bell is ringing with a tempo of like ding, 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 ding. Yeah. And the score goes ding, ding. It's like, come on. <laughs> this is the one thing where I can feel the sound in the movie, and you didn't even fucking sync it up. Didn't even try. <laughs> yeah. Actually, the, it, when I say I liked it, I like the softer parts of the of the score more. Like the the during the, it reminded me of um, the Star Wars, John Williams' score for Star Wars. Not the bombastic parts of it, but like the uh, the quiet scenes of like what, P, uh, Luke, Luke talking Luke, to Leia, Luke looking off on the moons, or Luke whatever. looking off. Yeah. It, it, some of those uh, orchestral moments reminded me of that. Mm. Nice, um, David. Yeah, I thought the. I mean, it was interesting. It's it's my first like silent movie soundtrack where it's constant. Uh, one thing I did think was interesting was like at a certain point with like the workers, their like perverse revolt that's going on. They they kind of like play a perversion of the French national anthem, where it's like the da 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 da, and then it goes minor. Hmm. Uh, I think it was a fun like uh, like musical. Um, parody of like the brotherhood that that the workers are trying to be about hmm. how it's been like corrupted nice. yeah okay of those involved with the film would this be anyone's number one achievement probably. I can just go ahead and say probably yep. for everybody probably. almost everyone almost everybody maybe Fritz Lang we don't know yet we'll Fritz, see him Fritz next Lang's time the only one <laughs> there might be a question on because I don't think many of these people were in other a lot of other movies. I know that the screenwriter did a lot more work after this movie. Specifically, the was Nazis. a propagandist the for Hitler's Germany. Um, so I would say that, uh, without question, this is morally uh, her biggest achievement. Her best work. Yeah. Was after divorcing Fritz Lang, she was like, I fucking love Nazis. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to make all their movies. Um, yeah, for Fritz Lang, I, I don't know. It might, might be... Uh... Go ahead. Sorry, it might be a little per- perverse of me, but the it, this movie, even though it's such a chore, it makes me want to see more uh, German expressionism stuff and more Fritz Lang. I'm going to watch him at honestly. some point now whenever I can like, find Like, I'm it. just interested. Yeah. yeah. What's that one? Uh, I don't know if he did it, but there's that German movie, uh, the Dr. Cali- Cagliari? Cagliari. Dr. Caligari. It's like yeah. one of the first horror movies. Yeah, it's... it's I am interested in seeing that. It's... I think I've, I've seen that. Yeah, I think that's uh, F.W. Murnau, who did Nosferatu. He did uh, mm. do, the Dr. Caligari one. Nice. 
Okay. Was well, it financially uh, successful. Yeah. Was it financially successful? Well, it cost five million Reichmarks to make. <laughs> it only made seventy five thousand Reichmarks back. Oh jeez. So, no, it was not financially like, successful. Yeah. At all. <laughs> I mean, that's time. not a huge surprise. Uh, at the time, and right now, it is making zero dollars because it is uh, public works. There's there's some weird copyright rules about it. In Europe, it's still copywritten and belongs to the estate of Fritz Lang. But in the U.S., the copyright's going to lapse, I think, the year that the movie is set. The copyright lapses in 2026. Weird. And it becomes public work. Yeah. Nice. Yeah, they keep pushing back the public domain data now. Yeah. It's, it was like, they pretty much keep keeping it before Elvis. <laughs> still. Yeah. Uh, I think it's obvious what, well, I think it's obvious why it wasn't successful. Because it's fucking batshit crazy. Yeah. It's um, just a moving, moving pictures. <laughs> it's also because it's ahead of its time. Yeah, sure. Mm-hmm. For, the, for the more uh, sunnier take on it. <laughs> Also, if, if, if it was at all advertised the way that it is advertised now, like, it it looks like a children's movie because it's going to have, like, robots and it's going to be, you know, like, a sci-fi story. But that is certainly not what this fucking movie is. Uh, next, we get to the question that I think will do the most service for its cause uh, for Talk of Fame. Is it important to film history? And I think an easy Yes. So much influence on movies that came after it. Movies, video games, books. Yeah, you already talked about books. I can, there were parts when I noticed that I, that reminded me of Bioshock yep. during the movie. Nice. There were, uh, like I said, the score reminded me of John Williams scores in, in little ways. The uh, Yeah, I mean, you first, first mad scientist in a movie, pretty, maybe, yeah. probably. First robot in a movie, probably, maybe. Um, what, I mean, first, like, Dystopian the way I think of it. Yeah. Um, just ridiculous. And then a lot of the the set design had to have been like eye-opening for other filmmakers. Yeah. They could just be like, oh! Yeah. <laughs> Wildly ambitious. And yeah. they spent almost nothing. <laughs> or, let me try that again in case we look up later. And cost a lot of money, but it was worth every penny. <laughs> and what I thought was crazy is for the special effects... Like the uh, it's the cinematographer, the DP or someone. His name's like Shuftang. He he created a process called like the Shuftang process to like mirror people onto miniature sets that was used in Return of the King. The same process. Whoa! Oh yeah, that's right. Not yet perfected it because it's it's named after him. It's called like the Shifter process or whatever the guy's name is. Yeah. Nice shift shiftless. That's- that's really impressive. It's called the the, the Gandalf process. Yeah, but I think the movie is incredibly visually uh, influential. Like, I think there's probably a lot of movies we're going to have in yeah. the talk of fame that were, would not be possible without this. Thinking The Matrix, for sure, indebted to this. Star Wars, for sure. You know, parts of Ghostbusters, the art, art deco and, like, how they do the uh, Temple of Zul later on. It's like, it's... Everywhere you can you can think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they didn't invent the architectural back, movement. Back though. to the Future with Doc Brown is like Rotwang, but a benevolent Rotwang. Mm-hmm. I'm not trying to make the million monkeys and a million typewriters argument, but I mean, like Bauhaus existed before. Um, like this this movie should be credited with doing it first, but 
we can't ignore the fact that other things would have done it probably also absent this movie. Well, that's a thought. Not necessarily every art movement is going to move to a yeah. new medium. It's definitely, it's definitely a check mark in the pro column. Um, is it one of the best movies in its genre of, well, let's, I mean, silent we, sci-fi, si- silent films, <laughs> silent non-comedies, if we call that a genre. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I, mean, I don't know either, but I would have to imagine that Probably. few few are as visually interesting. Yeah. As of, this. of the ones I have seen, it is definitely in the top one. This <laughs> <laughs> is a clear number one. Yeah, we may just have to punt that question. We don't really know, unless we just call it sci-fi, and once again, it's hard to say. No. I mean... <laughs> I don't think it is the best sci-fi movie. No. Um, has the film aged well? Definitely aspects of it have. Yeah, it's hard. Like, the plot is simple, but there are lots of movies with simple plots that execute really well. And I think that... That some of the standout moments in this are the they're you know great for what they do. Regardless, that's mm-hmm. the thing is when you watch a movie from 1927 and 2018, you kind of have to give it a pass because everything it's doing, it's doing for the first time, right? Or it's doing poorly, and you have to like come to grips with the fact that you're the only person who thinks that it's doing it poorly absent the time that you're evaluating it in. I think that, I don't know, I think the acting is what ages worst Yeah, from these older movies. The dialogue is garbage. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I think, I agree, I think the, the set design and the, the grand aspects of it have aged as well as you could expect. Yeah. Um, I think we've already covered. Would you recommend anyone to watch it today? Like, no, well, not not anyone, and really not not many one. <laughs> like, just not, like, I could I could probably rattle off the people. I would be like, hey, you should check out this movie because mm-hmm. enemies. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think what we got a, got from the beginning of like, did you uh, were you entertained? I think the, there's only thing here for people is like academic. Enjoyment. Yeah. Like, yeah. you consider yourself like, like a cinephile of any kind. Then yeah, it's maybe. like a it's like a rite of passage seeing these kinds of movies. You yes, know? it is. And being yeah. being able to say like, "Oh, Metropolis did it first. I feel like this is more impressive to people. They're like, "I have a movie podcast. <laughs> it's like, I watched Metropolis." <laughs> yeah, I mean, the best thing about having watched this movie is that I've seen Metropolis. Yeah, <laughs> and I get to say that, and I'm done with having to. Like, oh, I gotta get around to watching Metropolis. I'll never have to get around to watching Metropolis again. And I'm so happy about that. You know those street, those street toughs that go around asking people if they've seen Metropolis and Sunrise? Next time Chris R. is like, have you seen Metropolis? I go, ooh, yeah, yikes. And he'll be like, okay, you have seen it. Chris um, You ready to vote, David? Or do you have anything else you want yes. to say? Okay. I think it's I think it's a yes for me. I mean, I don't. It's so much weighing on what it did um, for the future of, of my you know favorite genre of movie. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd be hard pressed to not have it in, but I would totally be fine with anybody saying no at the same time. 
then I will go second. Okay. And I will say, my opinions about the movie are, are well known already. Um, but, as a joke, I wanted to say that I'm voting no because it's not a talkie. Um, <laughs> it is the talk <laughs> of fame. <laughs> it is. Well, yeah, but I understand that we look like fools to other people who, if they ever came across this in a time capsule, if they saw that we evaluated Metropolis and said, nah, that we would look like idiots. And to them, I thumb my nose and I say no. (laughs) (laughs) Right. So, yeah, I compared it. There was a, a baseball name that came up in my head as I was watching this movie. And the name is Candy Cummings. Candy Cummings was a pitcher in like the 1860s, 1870s. I might even be off of that. But it's 19th century pitcher who I would have no interest in watching, really, Candy Cummings pitch back in the day. He invented the curveball, though. <laughs> like, it's a he's a pretty big change in baseball history was candy cummings and i feel like if i were at the in cooperstown at the hall of fame i would not spend much time at the candy cummings exhibit but i would also question why he wasn't there if he wasn't like inducted into the hall of fame for for what he brought to baseball um so my vote is yes and i'm not it is never going to be one of my favorite movies but (laughs) It is uh, important enough and impressive enough. If it's your favorite movie, you scare me as a person. <laughs> that is true. <laughs> I really like Tower of Babel movies. If it's your favorite movie, you're probably not even Fritz Lang. <laughs> <laughs> so it comes down to David. Actually, that's right, because it was Hitler's favorite movie. <laughs> it was Hitler's favorite movie. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, yes, it's a scary. What you got, David? Alright, so my vote, it may surprise you guys, but I am a no for this one. I can appreciate it from an academic sense, but my thought is, what is the talk of fame to us? If it is just like a list of the greatest movies of all time, we might as well just be like an IMDb list, and we'll just list them out and they'll all be there. Yeah. To me, it's more like, we're, we're redefining what is our... What would define our Hall of Fame? What shaped us? Absolutely. And uh, if I can only appreciate it on an academic sense and I can't engage with it in an emotional way and I have problems with, uh, you know, the story is like a parable on purpose, but uh, I'm, I, can, I can appreciate this from a distance in an academic sense, but as currently constructed, I just can't see it in our talk of fame that has stripes in the Matrix and, you know, if it was if it was the greatest movies of all time that would have like metropolis stripes would be replaced with like paths paths of glory and you know beetlejuice would be replaced of like the cabinet of dr caligari but it's not this is us you know yeah totally that's my take to- on it to- totally down all so right. metropolis doesn't make it i'm okay enjoying the what the movies that were influenced by it while Still recognizing that, uh, you know, standing on the shoulders of a giant like this, but 
uh, other movies ended up doing it better, kind of. Yeah, I, I definitely appreciate it. it. And, uh, you know, this is a fun talk of fame pick for me because it was definitely the first one that none of us had seen mm-hmm. Yeah, going in. Um, uh, but, yeah, I am I'm, I'm proud. I'm oh, not proud. It's horrible. I'm happy with my yes vote, and I'm also fine with it not being in. Makes perfect sense. Yeah. And, uh, you know, that's not to get, like, super cheesy, but that's one of the reasons the four of us wanted it to be the four of us. Mm-hmm. Because we're all we all look at this way differently, so so uh, Metropolis, we grappled with it atop the building, and Metropolis falls to its death <laughs> out of the talk. Of it joins what Amelie and Rotwang and uh, Werewolf American Werewolf in London. Mm-hmm. The, the three that didn't get in. Really, just stay out of Europe if you want to make a movie that gets into our talk of fame. Because yeah. even even Stripes almost lost it on the Europe. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's the European part. Amelie. <laughs> Werewolf. Yeah. No thanks. Um, we're American. And we're, uh, we're doing no homework this week, right? Because yep. next podcast, we're going to have one podcast this week. Uh, there'll be a little mini podcast up and... Uh, write an article about a Netflix movie that I watched that'll go up but uh, the next big thing is our big Oscar voting podcast thing right yeah mm-hmm. so homework for this week is just watch some Oscar nominated movies if you have any left I've only got you've got eight now uh, or did you stag- uh, stagnate eight. it yeah eight. TJ's got eight feature length films and five shorts I've got nine feature lengths and five shorts. I'm definitely not going to make it all the way, but uh, our goal is to hopefully have someone who has seen every like, movie, almost every like almost every movie having been seen by one of us. Yes. So we'll no. we'll talk to you next time then, David. Man, gone are the days where I'm the only one who sees a man called Ove and can <laughs> swing a whole category. <laughs> <laughs> Check out um, on Body and Soul. Oh, yeah, course. real quick before the outro. Um, if you're listening and you're not on the Facebook group, I think there might be a couple of y'all that are. If you've seen all the Best Picture nominees, we'll do our preferential ballot that we did last year with our friends. So uh, message the media bias on Facebook. You can do that, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so message us uh, your rankings, one to nine of the Best Pictures, and we'll get them and tally them up and be part of our yep. preferential we'll, we'll do a ballot. Facebook post, too, and... You can do yeah. Gmail or Twitter as well, but I'm kind of looking forward to doing the uh, the collating of it. Uh, it's really interesting how how it gets done. Yeah, yeah, it's bizarre. We'll talk about it next week, some I'm sure. We should also do. We should have everybody. Also, since we'll have everybody's rankings, we could even do like an in an alternate universe if the Academy wasn't fucking stupid with the way they did it. We could we could total that up. We did yeah. that. I think we did that last year too. Yeah, right? we did that. Yeah, yeah. Which is the same. The only reason we're putting, I think, so much pressure on doing the preferential this year is because since we did top ten list this year, we know yeah. <laughs> what it's going to be. Yeah. So I like it. Um, but, yeah, we got a lot more to talk about. That'll be fun. Yep. Yep. David. You want to take us out? So that's it for this, uh, this podcast. Uh, I want to say, uh, what do I want to say? This was Talkie Talk, the podcast for the media by us. Please visit the site and see our stuff. Connect with us on Twitter, Gmail, our Facebook uh, groups, Movies by Us, TV by Us, and Games by Us, and our Facebook page called The Media by Us. Now, we'd love to hear from you. Podcast topics and things you could do to help us out would be to subscribe, give us a rating, 
I want to say um, thanks to the Willow Walkers for performing the intro music. Thanks. Willow Walkers. And thanks to Burifa for performing the outro music. Burifa. I want to say thanks to you guys for uh, for doing this little uh, thing we call a podcast. Yeah. Thanks, David. And thanks, everyone, for listening, and hopefully this uh, is listenable. <laughs> Kicking rocks down old dusty roads. Small town, slow pokes, long time ago. Kicking out records of all the things that I know. All the things that I know.